I, I must admit that I was very disappointed with uh, whoever the fan was who made a, a comment that I thought was really inappropriate during the moment of silence. Um, it's that kind of prejudicial uh, ideology that I think puts us in the position uh, that we're in today as a world. That was Green Bay Packers all-world quarterback Aaron Rodgers speaking out against anti-Muslim bigotry shouted out at Lambeau Field in Green Bay. Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are thinking about, we are talking about, and we are discussing the ISIS massacre in Paris and trying to understand its implications through the world of sports. To help us do that, we have my friend George Atala, the communications director from the NFL Players Association. Uh, We are also going to have a comment by me on the need to stay woke in the wake of these horrific attacks. And we have the Just Stand Up Award and worthier candidates we could not have. But first, a quick word about the killings themselves. It was no coincidence that one of the targets was the French National Stadium, where France and Germany were playing in front of 65,000 people. The goal of ISIS, which frankly is a shared goal of many people on the right wing in this country, is to eliminate what ISIS calls the gray zone. That space where young Muslims, young Christians, young Jews, and young atheists come together. They want a holy war, a clash of civilizations, and again, this objective is shared by the governors in this country, in practice, by denying Syrian refugees safe harbor, including my own governor, Larry Hogan, in Maryland. Now, the French national team for over two decades has been a symbol of this kind of shared space, a symbol of this kind of gray area, a place where black, brown, and white could come together to play, and France as well could come together to cheer. It was the place where Zinedine Zidane, the French star of Algerian descent, scored two goals with his head in a stadium built in the poor Paris suburbs by his own immigrant father to win the World Cup for France in 1998. Now, the actions by security guards at the French National Stadium, and some of those security guards were of Muslim descent, to repel the bomber trying to get inside the stadium was so incredibly important, and not only because it saved countless lives, but because the destruction of that symbol would have had a power inside of France, not unlike the fall of the World Trade Center and the power that that had in the United States. And if there's one thing we know is that we are right in the middle of a psychological war. And the psychology of destroying the French National Stadium, I think, would have been just absolutely ineffably devastating in addition to the horrific deaths that did take place. To understand some of this, I wanted to talk to George Atala, the communications director of the NFL Players Association and also a Lebanese-American who I know wrestles with these issues. I wanted to get your reaction, if I could, to what happened in Green Bay. Less the fans' anti-Muslim invective. You don't have to comment on one uh, one jerk yelling out one disgusting thing. But I really am curious about your thoughts about Aaron Rodgers, unprompted, unasked, taking the time to say what he said. I think it was fantastic. I applaud him for standing up, especially after a loss. You know, it's not something that usually players have top of mind after a tough game like that, um, a historic game against Detroit where Detroit hadn't come in there in 24 years and won. And for him to do that press conference and make such a strong statement, even with the little that he said, mm-hmm. 
was huge because certainly you don't see that type of thing from or or the criticism is you don't see that type of thing from athletes as much these days. Yeah, and it's worth telling listeners that this wasn't just a loss. I mean, this was a gut punch, yes. 18 to 16. Green Bay, the far superior team, had a million chances to come back. And missed each a field goal one, at the end. Yeah, missed yeah. a field goal at the end. And even with all of that, Aaron Rodgers spoke. I thought what was powerful about what he said, and I want to get your reaction to it, is it's sentiments and hatred like that which is the reason why things like Paris happen as well. And I thought, like, you don't hear, certainly not even leading politicians to say things like that, 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 that you, people have to understand this holistically, that there is an atmosphere um, of hatred, that there is an atmosphere of distrust and violence, and you can't look at any one instance in a vacuum. I mean, that's, that's to me what made it, like, particularly searing. This is not a one-dimensional problem. Yeah. And I think Aaron brought to light that this is not going to be resolved by just building an intellectual or material wall. Sports has a, has a tremendous way of bringing people together and unifying people. And, you know, we mentioned before we started recording about the symbolic nature of the French national soccer team and how many African immigrants are on that team, how many North African immigrants are on that team, how many people have assimilated to play such a big part in their World Cup victories beyond just the homegrown Platonese. Right. And sports has that effect on cultures, on nations, on this country as well. I mean, my dad, the way that he helped assimilate with other Americans in this country was watching the Steelers of the late 70s. Right. And, and this is from Lebanon. And yep. this is from Lebanon. So my parents are Lebanese immigrants, and, and they came— to this country right after I was born. I mean, I think that they were, uh, by definition, uh, refugees from the Civil War there. This country took us in. Um, we made a life. Here I am sitting in front of you today. And uh, that wouldn't happen if the doors of this country were closed to people. That right. Would, you know, beyond, and again, not just doors, but, but mindsets. So my wife is American. Her family has their own immigration story. And when I married into that family, I learned a lot about their history from my father-in-law's family traveling from Sweden and how they had to make their way here and why they're now living you know, outside of Buffalo, New York. And so there's this really powerful enmeshment that happens in America that I think has to be preserved, and sports can play a really powerful role in that. And it, I, I can't help now but ask you about what could be tearing apart that enmeshment, and that's just the laundry list of governors who are coming forward to say, even though I, from what I understand, they don't even have a legal or constitutional basis to even say this, but saying that they will not take in Syrian refugees, people who are fleeing the very violence that we've seen both in Beirut and in Paris over the last week. Uh, first, I want to know, what's your reaction to the governor saying that we're not going to take in your tired, your poor, your huddled masses? And, and also, if if the NFLPA is in a position to release a statement about it or make any sort of statement to say that this is wrong? Look, the only way I can answer that question is through my own personal experience, Dave. What do I want to tell my three daughters when they grow up about the heritage and legacy of their family? You know, I have three young daughters. My daughter's five. For the first time, she's starting to get a consciousness about world events. 
on a very basic level, right? So after the bombing in Beirut on Thursday, she saw that I was frazzled. I picked up the phone and called Teta and Jiddu, my, my parents, her grandparents. And she wanted to know what happened. Were they okay? Who was the bad guy? And for all of these governors who are saying that the only answer, and by the way, presidential candidates, mm-hmm. who are saying that the answer is to shut our doors, my daughters are not in the United States if we have that sort of isolationist policy in the late 70s. Mm. They don't get the experiences to live in a free, safe, secure country that gives, by the way, women an opportunity to grow up and and do whatever they want, unlike some of the places that they might have grown up in elsewhere. So I, that's the only way I can answer it is from what do I want my daughters to know about their own family history. Now, the, the NFL, as you know and I know, is, is really not shy in these kinds of moments about really pumping up a, a really particularly, I would call it a militarized form of nationalism, of a pretty intense uh, jingoism in a lot of cases. I mean, can you speak about your reaction to that, just your individual reaction when you see that? Well— You don't want to diminish or dishonor the service that many Americans make to our country. And obviously, November happens to be a month where we commemorate throughout the month. And But not just in the United States, by the way. Across Europe, um, we commemorate those who serve. But it's not a one-dimensional solution or a one-dimensional viewpoint about how we secure our nation, how we fight for our principles, how we stand up to foreign governments who are oppressive. It's not just a military problem or a military solution. And I think, you know, while I, th- I believe strongly that it's appropriate that we honor those who serve our country in, in a way that really brings to light the choice that they make, because it's a choice, we don't have a draft in America, to think about these types of issues one-dimensionally is a mistake. And that's where I applaud Aaron for standing up and, and saying what he did at the press conference, because it just, you know, you, ha- you have to look at the other side of it. Um, but as, as, as a Lebanese American, I would ask you, um, and as a man with the name George Atala, are, are there concerns, fears that, when, that, that what the kind of anger this kind of this these kinds of situations whip up we've already started to hear reports of you know attacks on on Sikh people because they think they're Muslim I mean oftentimes the bigots do not care to distinguish uh, what one's religious ideals are they don't they don't they look at what you look like right what your last name sounds like and they make certain assumptions at times like this it takes some leadership from people and it takes leadership from people who are in positions, who can fight ignorance, who can educate. And I know that there is a growing voice here in the United States of Arab Americans who are trying to help people understand that we are as much Americans as what our heritage is or where we're from or what our religion is or what our value system is. It's unfortunate that you have to make those types of claims, but it's even in the language we use. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've even stopped referring to these people as Islamic State because they're not a state. They're a group of horrible people, period. 
and to even use some sort of official term with state in it, I think gives them way more credibility than, than they deserve. You know, at the same time, I went through the same reactions after 9-11. You know, I lived in New York City. Um, I was a few blocks away. And I remember my first reaction was, you know, uh-oh, there's going to be a backlash. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, it's not one, again, these are not one-dimensional problems. And now that I have the tremendous opportunity to work in sports, in the back of my mind, I always try to think of how our union, within finite parameters of what we do, how do we help bring down barriers of race, of ethnicity, of culture? How do we educate on on all sorts of issues, not just this one? Uh, So it's a really kind of um, unique responsibility for us that we have to also show some leadership on. You're you're a a Christian man of of Lebanese descent. Yep. We've known each other a long time. Yep. I often thought that you happen to be Muslim because you've always been not just that you're from Lebanon, but that you've always been a absolutely principled opponent of Islamophobia and you've always been somebody who's spoken out against racism and bigotry when it's directed against people for being Muslim. And I, I was just wondering, is that something that you came to when you came to the United States, this idea of like, I need to stand uh, with my Muslim sisters and brothers, partly because I, I receive some of the runoff of that prejudice just because of where I'm from? Or? Yeah, I think there's some runoff from that, but I also think our experiences are similar. Mm. So when you look at, I mean, when two presidential candidates said that how how could Syrian immigrants, how could Syrian refugees assimilate to cold places in the United States? Did you see right. that? Yeah. And I'm like, do they forget that there's almost 400,000 Arab Americans living in Dearborn? In Dearborn. Not exactly the, <laughs> the you know, no, the, the other beachside property. Right. There, you know, the other one was the state rep in Texas who said we can't take Syrian refugees because it's so easy to get guns here. I mean, the, the like, yeah. did, did irony just die? I th- I, I, it doesn't that doesn't make it's too unsafe because of that, all the guns. That doesn't, that doesn't even make I mean, when you kind of like throw logic out and reason out the window to make statements like that. You know, it's just it's ignorance, and yeah. and I think some of that ignorance has spilled over from my personal experiences. I know certainly my wife gets it all the time, you know, because she took on the Atala name, and uh, she gets questions like that all the time. Oh, you're married to a Muslim, mm-hmm. and so you have to overcome that type of ignorance on all of the. Uh, fronts of prejudice. Well, I assume it's polarizing because if your name is George Atala and you're a Christian man of Lebanese descent, you sort of have to make the decision of like, okay, I'm going to receive some anti-Muslim prejudice. So either I have to be the biggest bigot in the room (laughs) or I have to stand (laughs) with my Muslim sisters and brothers. I mean, but again, it's common experiences, right? We're all going to the same restaurants. We're all going, sharing the same food. We're sharing similar cultural experiences. Um, you know, my parents before the Civil War said that they didn't distinguish mm. in Lebanon. They didn't. My mom went to school with plenty of Muslim people, and my dad, same thing, worked and um, had experiences with with people of all kinds in Beirut. I mean, Beirut. I mean, was the Paris of the Middle exactly, East? Exactly, which is one of the things I think that's that's missed in this whole thing is there's this almost romantic connection between the two cities of Beirut and Paris. Mm-hmm that is lost on some of the people who don't know that nuance and don't know that history. So 
the coverage of what happened on Thursday in Beirut, followed by what happened in Paris on Friday, is stilted in a way that doesn't really encompass that romantic relationship between those two tremendous cities, who who are symbols of similar things in their, you know, Paris for the world and Beirut for that region and for many people in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't tell you living here in Washington, D.C., how many people I come across who tell me that was a great place or they went to school there or they went to visit there. So those are things that I think, you know, we can hold on to to try to bring us together. It gives a little bit of perspective as to what's really happening. It's also important because I think it teaches people something about the Middle East because, if it's true that there's this thousands upon thousands of year old holy war between Muslims in the West, then how do you explain Beirut? You know, how do you explain uh, what Baghdad was in the 50s and 60s and 70s? How do you explain uh, the history of places like Cairo and Alexandria? You can't explain it. And so then you have to start, but then it gets a little scary because then you have to look deeper about what foreign policy decisions by the West, what corruption by local leaders in the Middle East have actually spurred and and watered the growth of uh, of, of militant violence. Yeah, it's it's very very depressing. I mean, I've been very sad this week to see how all of this has played out, and I think what people crave in moments like this is real leadership. And we can't, as humanity, succumb to our hatred. We can't, as humanity, succumb to ignorant things that are being said about a group of people that they know nothing about. Right. So, you know, again, bringing it back to our own little universe of of sports and our union and what we do all the time when we fight this with race. I mean, if you remember when Rush Limbaugh was considering buying the St. Louis Rams, we took a major stand against that. Our union stood up and said, we don't want somebody who's purporting racist views to be affiliated with our business, with our game, and all of the things that we want to project. So my God, not not just the events of the last uh, week, but imagine in the wake of Ferguson, if Rush Limbaugh uh, uh, had owned the St. Louis Rams. I, I can't. It's, I, I can't it's even. It's like a dystopic alternative <laughs> universe. I can't. I mean, now that you just said that, I can't even wrap my head yeah. around <laughs> any of that. But we're not. A, I mean, we, we've always taken principled stance and we're always out there, um, you know, at least telling our players that there's a way to have these discussions in a constructive way, but they have to be had. The the other side of it that I think is really crucial, as uncomfortable as having this discussion is in my position, because I'm not an expert on, I read a lot, I do my homework, I have my personal experiences, but I certainly am not privy to our national security policy, for example. But um, I think it's really crucial to have these uncomfortable discussions that take us outside of our comfort zones so that we learn more. Right. Um, We, as sports, again, we have a real major responsibility in that by just existing, we bring people together. And and that gets to my my last question because 
I've actually been very encouraged by not just Aaron Rodgers, but the comments of people like Nicholas Batum and Rudy yeah. Gobert about their feelings. I mean, they're, they're suffering. Tony Parker, I mean, they're suffering in, in the aftermath of what took place in Paris. But they're also not calling for bloodshed. They're trying to uh, not... Um, be the sort of people who argue for a collective punishment. And, and I mean, it makes me at the very least hopeful if sports is actually going to be a reflection of society that maybe this won't be like after 9-11 where it seemed like the gloves were off and anything and everything was acceptable for people to say or presidents to do no matter what the long-term repercussions. Are you feeling similarly maybe hopeful yeah. based on some of the responses? I think I'm still just sad. And yeah. I think I'm I think I'm mostly sad again t- personal experience. I'm sad that my daughter is asking the same questions about my parents that I was asking about my parents and in, in you know when I was 5 years old. Are they okay? Right. What happened? Who are the bad people? Why did this happen? And then she sees something flash on the news cuz you can't avoid, you know, at least in my house we can't avoid following the coverage. Um, and when she asks a question about, um, did you see dad three more people? Mm. And I don't want, I mean, it's a reality of the world we live in, unfortunately, that, that tragedies happen. But I'm mostly sad that my country, after 37 years, is still going through this um, war with itself. And, you know... Uh, I can only, I'm just thankful that we're in a better place and hopefully my personal experience will help people understand why as a nation we need to show leadership and help the people. Nobody's telling you to change your foreign policy position. Right. But these people who are from all countries who are fleeing, who are trying to set up a community here from places that are way worse than we have it here. Like you said, give us your tired, your poor, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. I, I'm reminded also of this uh, line that Louis C.K. has where he says that, uh, you know, we're the only country or one of the few countries where we get to choose when we tell our kids about the war. Like in a lot of countries, you yeah. know, it's like people don't even have the luxury of making that decision no. of when you tell your kids about it's the existential. War. Yeah, it's 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 perpetual and it's existential in a lot of places in the world. And these people want a better life. Right. Period. national security concerns. I get that. We want to keep America safe. I get that. But intellectual and material walls are not the way to progress. That's just my, that's just how I feel. Very well said. George Atala, communications director of the NFL Players Association. Thanks so much for joining us here on Edge of Sports. My pleasure. George, if you could tell our listeners where they can keep up with what you're doing, where they can follow you on social media and the like. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram on at NFLPA or myself personally at George Atala, A-T-A-L-L-A-H.
Just so folks know, we're going to have Demora Smith, the executive director of the NFLPA, on the show in a couple weeks. And there we're going to talk about issues such as Greg Hardy, the domestic violence policy, and other issues that the NFLPA is at the heart of. Obviously, for this week, we just wanted to focus on the events in Paris and Beirut. Okay, so now I'm going to read my column from this week at thenation.com. It has a French title, but it is not in French. Ne vous laissez pas manipuler. So... As news of the Paris massacres agonizingly revealed itself on Friday, drip by drip, the community of French professional athletes in the United States took to social media to voice their solidarity, concern, and heartbreak. But there was one transgressive exception to the heartfelt statements of people just saying that they hope everybody in Paris is safe and all right. And this was sent by Utah Jazz Center Rudy Gobert, whose nickname is The Stifle Tower, because he is a game-changing force for the Jazz, turning around the franchise one block at a time. So as Paris burned, Gobert tweeted the following. Ne vous laissez pas manipuler. You say those five words out loud. Ne vous laissez pas manipuler. I mean, like most phrases in French, it assumes a natural rhythmic poetry that actually requires a lot of exertion when you're trying to write in English. But there's nothing whimsical in the translation. I mean, what the phrase means is, do not allow yourself to be manipulated. So what did Gobert mean by do not allow yourself to be manipulated? Did he mean don't allow yourself to be manipulated by the killers openly trying to polarize the Muslim community? Did he mean don't be manipulated by war-thirsty politicians also yearning for a clash of civilizations? Honestly, his intent matters less than the words themselves. Ne vous laissez pas manipuler. I mean, these five words, they have an idiomatic translation in a much-used hashtag of the Black Lives Matter movement, and that's stay woke. Let's talk about what it means to stay woke, to not be manipulated. To stay woke in the aftermath of the Paris attacks is an act of conscious resistance against an ugly tide. I mean, before the bodies had even been counted, France had shut down its borders for the first time since 1944, and xenophobic right-wing politician Marine Le Pen uh, reacted with calls to expel all immigrants, and frankly, Le Pen now looks like she is in the position to become a leader of France, which would be actually a victory for ISIS. Now, as hostages were still messaging for help from inside the Bataclan Theater, pundits with frighteningly vast followings were using the dead bodies like quills dipped in blood as they brayed for total war. They demanded an attack on Muslims, Shia, Sunni, Palestinians, Iranians, just an undifferentiated mass of innocent people who Senator Ted Cruz defined as future casualties in the war against ISIS. And then there are the U.S. commentators using the dead to bash college students for actually trying to fight for a world with less hatreds than the one they inherited. Judith Miller is a Lilliputian golem whose reporting lubricated the lies of Dick Cheney and helped birth the Iraq War. For reasons that must reside in her own shameless ego, she felt the right to attack young people, even though Miller has earned nothing through her work but the right to remain silent. But above all else, we've been buried in a social media avalanche of the kinds of martial sentiments that once took William Randolph Hearst days to compose and distribute. Blame brown immigrants, drop bombs from the skies, take zero accountability for the so-called collateral damage, and most critically, set domestic concerns aside. How could they matter when there are wars to fight and your children could be the next soft targets? 
Now, my belief, drawn from speaking to those trying to push for positive change inch by agonizing inch, is that what worked for Hearst in 1903 and what worked for Judith Miller in 2003 won't work in 2015. It won't work because you can't argue that all that matters is a war on terror when the families of Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and Sandra Bland probably have a very different definition of terrorism. You can't tell the students at Missouri and Howard that now is the time to really be afraid when they already have to live with people threatening their lives for going to class. It won't work because you cannot expect people to now ignore climate change or police violence or homegrown racism or the attacks on Planned Parenthood because of the urgency created by the Paris killings, because for people with their eyes open, we are encircled by competing urgencies. The world is still warming, the police are still shooting, and a massacre in Paris does not stanch these wounds. If anything, the killings gouge them further. Those telling us what to think have a message that rings as falsely as a Ben Carson anecdote. You can't tell us to see Muslims as a collective enemy when they are our friends, our neighbors, and when we feel their fear. You can't tell an 18-year-old who was four when the attacks of 9-11 took place and has known nothing but a permanent state of mismanaged war, that you have the answers for what ails us when your remedies feel like more poison than a cure. Through her eyes, she was born into a broken world, and it would be the heights of lunacy to think you could do anything except break it into smaller and smaller pieces. Stay woke. There is no going the f*** to sleep. If we ever hope to get out of bed, ne vous laissez pas manipuler. The future depends on it. Now it's time for our Just Stand Up Award. People who are using the Hyper Exalted brought to you by Nike platform in the world of sports to actually say something about the world. There's a small part of me that wants to give this award to George Atala just for coming in and speaking about this from the NFL Players Association. That in and of itself and in this climate is an act of bravery. There's certainly a huge part of me that wants to give this award to Aaron Rodgers for standing at that podium after a devastating loss to the Detroit Lions. And clearly what was on his mind, what was disturbing him was not the missed field goal at the buzzer, but it was the fact that someone in the Green Bay stands yelled a disgusting piece of anti-Muslim invective. But you know what? As we are all still reacting and are shocked and are upset about what, what took place in Paris and for many of us what took place in Beirut as well, uh, we have to remember that the struggles we talked about last week at Missouri haven't gone anywhere. Uh, students are still demonstrating. Students are still fighting for safe space to be able to go to class and not feel threatened. And it's happening on campuses around the country. And so the people who get the Just Stand Up Award this week are the Northwestern women's basketball team who put adhesive tape on the backs of their uniforms at a recent game and wrote, We Stand with Mizzou on that adhesive tape. Uh, they also released a statement about why they took such action. And this is just a small snippet of what they said. They said, we believe that students shouldn't have to choose between going to class and their safety, and that every voice is valuable and deserves to be heard. We hope that this act of love and solidarity will inspire other student-athletes to use their platforms to take a stand, end quote. It doesn't get more just stand-up than that. 
because I think that's what the Missouri football team showed, that athletes at the collegiate level have a tremendous amount of social capital and a tremendous amount of power if they choose to exercise it. Certainly as the world becomes more chaotic after the events of the last week, the need for people to stand up will only grow more urgent. like the show, subscribe to it on iTunes, subscribe to it on Stitcher, tell a friend. You can email me at edgeofsports at slate.com. You can follow me at edgeofsports. I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace.